וגם אני פתאום Welcome to Kolo. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, Director of the Columbus Community Kolel. And it's a great honor and privilege that we get to welcome you to our next interview featuring Rabbi Moshe Heyer of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. I'm here with my very good friend, Joel Markovich, President and CEO of Jewish Columbus. So, Joel, what are you looking forward to with our interview with Rabbi Heyer? Oh, well, first of all, you know, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for the opportunity Always uh, love talking with you and, uh, and really just uh, learning and understanding and, and an amazing opportunity to hear from Rabbi Haya. I, I think I'm just so interested to hear the breadth and depth of the work at the Simon Wiesenthal Center, the future, what is the plan moving forward as we enter a stage uh, and a, a life with, with survivors dwindling in numbers, what, what does the center work want to do next? And so I'm just excited to be here and, and have a great conversation. Right. Like the, the name uh, Simon Wiesenthal is like so deeply associated with combating anti-Semitism. Uh, there's probably not anyone involved with it that uh, that is not somewhat familiar with them. So it's a it's a really great privilege that we get to feature this uh, um, right here exclusively on our show. So uh, I guess without further ado, let's tell everybody about our guest. Rabbi Marvin Heyer is the founder, CEO, and president of the Simon Wiesenthal Center and its Museum of Tolerance. He founded the Museum of Tolerance, Jerusalem, in 1993, now in its final stages of construction in Jerusalem. In this capacity, Rabbi Heyer and his senior team have raised hundreds of millions of dollars for the institutions he now supervises and directs. Rabbi Heyer is the visionary who directs the strategic planning for both corporate entities he founded Maria Films, the center's film division, in 1980, of which he is the executive producer and is the only rabbi that is a member of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences and the recipient of two Academy Awards. His personal relationship with many of Hollywood's leading studio heads has resulted in 40 years of national tribute dinners, which have raised hundreds of millions of dollars for the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Rabbi Heyer was the first Orthodox rabbi in American history to be invited to deliver an invocation of a presidential inauguration and the first American to be chosen by the government of Israel to light the torch of remembrance on Israel Independence Day. He is also a recipient of two honorary PhDs. Rabbi Heyer, thank you so much for joining Kolot. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. So I, for, to start off, we want to ask you if you could please share with us a little bit about your background, your education, and upbringing. Well, uh, I, I was born in the Lower East Side. Uh, my parents uh, were fortunate enough to escape the Shoah. They came earlier. They were, they were both born in Europe, came to the United States. I went to, to Yeshiva Rabbeinu Shlomo Kluger. On the, on Houston Street. That's where my elementary school. From there I went to Yeshiva Sarabenu Yankiv Yosef on Henry, uh, on Henry Street, um, 156, I think, Henry Street. And there I studied and got smicha in, uh, 1962. Then went to Vancouver to be the rabbi in Sharetzedek, uh, congregation. And, uh, in, uh, 1977 came to Los Angeles. At first, we started about Shuva uh, Yeshiva, and uh, then it turned into a high school. And in the same year, we created a wing uh, for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which then expanded and has its own uh, large facility next to the Yeshiva. And, uh, you know, so Baruch Hashem, uh, I, uh, I, I never forget my... Uh, you know, my East side upbringing. So if you, if the accent or certain things that I say sounds like, uh, this guy comes from New York there, then, uh, then I'm doing the right thing because I do come from New York. You got a fantastic authentic accent. 
Uh, that's great. I love that. So yeah. you, you were privileged to uh, be around and study under some of the Shlomo Kogar, uh, some of the greatest uh, Torah uh, leaders of the generation. Um, I believe and I understand that you have some fascinating stories, maybe even some impersonations of such that include Ramosha Feinstein. So can you uh, uh, please indulge yourself and share with our listeners some of your um, stories? Well, well uh, let me let me say this. When I was learning in Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Yankiv Yosef, uh, the Rosh Yeshiva was the Talmud of Rabbaran Kotla from Kletsk. So the Rosh Yeshiva, he wanted us to pick up Rabbaran in Borough Park, and he always wanted me to go to be together with uh, people who had the car. David Greenwald, my Chabusa, he had a wonderful car. And so he said, you, you have to go because you speak Yiddish. And so... Uh, we went and uh, we uh, picked up uh, Rabaran and uh, took him to the yeshiva on numerous occasions, maybe three, four times. And I'll never forget. So after uh, being in the car with him and listening to his Yiddish, I was fluent in Yiddish. So I picked up his style of speaking. And uh, what occurred uh, on Purim, I thought it would be an excellent opportunity. All the Rosh Hashivas were there, all the Rabbeim were there, and all the Bokhrim were there. And so what happened is like this. We told the gathering that Rabbaran had said a Shia in Yankov Yosef a month before. So we told the gathering, here's what's going to happen now. We're going to put on the tape some excerpts from Rabbaran Kotlashir on the Suga of Chardal, afterwards, after which a bocha from the yeshiva will imitate it. And then we put on a tape recorder. And as we put on the tape recorder in the Suga of Chardal, after about two, three minutes in, everyone was deeply in, in tune and they were shaking. They're, they're shuckling and saying, you know, and uh, after the tape ends, the MC comes up and says like this, Rabosai, unfortunately, the person who was going to imitate uh, the, the, uh, the uh, Shia from Rabaran couldn't make it. He sent the tape instead. And of course, they were all embarrassed because they were all chuckling and it wasn't Rabaran Kotler, it was me. <laughs> so after the thing was, the, after it was over, Rabbi Yitzchak Tenla, who was a machut with Ramosha Feinstein, and he was one of the Magidei Shurim at Yankee Yosef, came over to me and he says, Moshe, I need a toiva from you. I want to take that tape and I want to play it to Ramosha Feinstein the next day. I'm going to be by him in the house. I'm taking the tape. I said, Rebbe, absolutely, take the tape. So he takes the tape. And the next morning, he goes to Rabbi Feinstein, puts, uh, tells him it's about that's uh, going to be a shear from Rabbarin on the suga of Chardel, and puts on the tape. As soon as he puts on the tape, Rabbi Feinstein, about a minute into the tape, begins to smile, and he says like this: "Akol kol yankov, how you die The voice is the voice of Jacob, but he says. The sound, he says, but the, the, the kavona is from Asa. So he was laughing. And of course, the, they were all, the Rashus were all embarrassed that they didn't, that they didn't have it the night before. So that happened with Rabbi and Kotla, uh, who of course was worthy of the true Gdole Ador. Sure. Oh, that is, that is a classic. I, I, maybe we'll, uh, I don't know. Do you still have a copy of that tape? I would love to hear it. I think we do. I have to find. I, I, I'll, I'll, I think we do. <laughs> That's so if the, if the Simon Wiesenthal said it wasn't going to work out, a, a career in stand-up comedy could have been <laughs> could have been an early on in the, yeah. in the early eighties. <laughs> well, I'll tell you how the Simon Wiesenthal Center started has also to do with my yeshiva background. Rabbi Yankel of was my rebbe in yeshiva. So Rabbi Shlomo he was a Satma Chosid, big Talmud Chochem. He wrote a Sefer based Yankov on, on, uh, on Mesechtas and Shas, a very big Talmud Chochem. And he taught me for my Bar Mitzvah. He taught me my Bar Mitzvah. 
I, I, I said off Torah, comes over to me. And he says to me, like, they get, pinches me and says, Moshe, that's how you say Aftorah. Say the Aftorah loud. So I said, Rebbe, why, why should I say it? Hecha? He says, you know why? Every yeshiva, every person in Bar Mitzvah should say it. Hecha. For the hundreds of thousands of children that were killed by Hitler, Yemach Shemo, that never had the opportunity to have a Bar Mitzvah, you have to have in mind that you're saying Daf Torah for them as well. Therefore, you can never say it, say it with a, with a, with a low voice. Hecha. And that, that's how I said Daf Torah. Wow. That's, uh, that's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, incredibly profound for sure. Um, so I wanted to go a little bit into, um, just you know, a little bit more about how it came about, how the center came about, and you know why, you know why this work, and you know why this time. Well, so let me let me tell you. When I was a rabbi in Vancouver, I took a group of people uh, to. We were in Vienna, and I said to them, you know, I I knew that Simon Wiesenthal lived in Vienna because I read a, his book. And I said at the time to the congregants that came on the trip, let's see if we can get just to shake his hand. So we go the, uh, down to where he had his office, the Jewish Documentation Center, tell his secretary, we have a group of people who just want to shake his hand. He came out and he shook my, he shook my hand and other balabatim. And, and uh, that's how the first contact. Then what occurred when I came to Los Angeles with the idea of how did I get the idea to start the Sign Wisdom Center? Because we had the yeshiva and, and we wanted in one wing to create the Sign Wisdom Center. Where did it come about? It came about when I took my children to the tar pits. For those that have not been to Los Angeles, the tar pits is a site where they discovered remnants of the ancient dinosaurs and everybody goes to the top it's to show kids look this is what the, this is where the dinosaurs were and you could see pictures of them etc and when i was take my children there a little girl i'd say 11 12 years old not from our group asked the guide whether can the dinosaurs come back and the guide replied, no, impossible because of the dramatic climate changes on the planet. They would not be able to survive and they can't come back. So on the way, walking home, I said, well, that was an interesting thing. And I said, you know what? My family, both sides of my family, my parents, their, their, their uh, parents and grandparents were all killed in the Shoah. I said, you know, the question is, can Hitler come back? Would we give the same answer that this she gave for the dinosaurs, that the climate on Earth changed for the better and that Hitler cannot come back? I said, we wouldn't give the same answer. And I said, so why don't I, in the wing that's left open in the yeshiva building, why don't we start a Holocaust center? It would be the first in the, in the United States. And basically, name it for a great man, Simon Wiesenthal, who spent all of his life, who lost 89 members of his family, who who didn't know anything about being a detective, knew nothing about this subject, who felt the achrayas because he lost 89 members of his family. Why not name it for him? And so that's the way it started. We called Simon. To his lawyer, found out that he had a lawyer, Marty Rose, in New York. And we went there. And when we went there, he wanted to have lunch. I told him, of course, we are Orthodox Jews. I don't have any lunch in the Intercontinental Hotel. But to have a fruit or have a glass of Coke, um, we'll, we'll meet there. We go into the Intercontinental Hotel and... I was like shocked because 
he was speaking as if he was deaf on both ears, speaking so loud that I'm looking around in the, in the Intercontinental Hotel, uh, you know, where the, where the coffee shop was. Everybody is listening to the conversation that he's talking to me. So he sees that I'm sort of getting, uh, you know, that I, he's looking at me and he sees I'm sort of looking around and he says, Rabbi Haya, I know what the problem is. You think I'm speaking too loud and you want me to speak lower. Do you know why I'm speaking so loud? He said, during the Shoah, in all the camps that I was, six camps, I couldn't open my mouth. I was a Jew. I was afraid for what is going to happen to me. And he says, now, he says, I'm not afraid. And take a look who's in this cafeteria now. They're all people 65, 75 years old, 80 years old. Where do you think there were during the, during the Holocaust? He says, they were on the, these people, most of them are probably were marching with Hitler. And I want them to know, no more will the Jews be quiet. The Jews now have a voice, he says, and they're going to use it. And I was amazed at, 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 the, at that comment. And then later he agreed to the name. And uh, today the Wiesenthal Center... Uh, has 250,000 members. Uh, we have offices around the world, in Europe, in the United States, in Canada. And uh, that's, how, that's how it happened. Well, that's an incredibly powerful story. Um, you know, when you talked about the idea of, of, you know, the dinosaurs in the top pit and being silent and, you know, and, uh, you know, the environment, you know, whether or not the environment can happen again for the dinosaurs or they happen again, you know, I really got chills on that because of what we see in a, in a, in a modern day, you know, what's happening, you know, the rise of anti-Semitism. We'll get that. We'll get there a little bit later. You know, certainly some questions around that. But look, I think one of the, the main uh, things when people think about the Weasel Center is the idea of tracking down and prosecuting um, Nazis or those who are collaborators uh, for the Nazi regime. And, you know, you know, there's a lot of talk online and like, you know, how, how are you still going after people who are now in their, you know, their nineties, their mid nineties, isn't it, isn't it, you know, uh, too late in order to prosecute, you know, how long, you know, do they, can they serve jail? What is the reason or is there a point of continuing to go after those that uh, were complicit in the, you know, in the, in the Holocaust? Well, First of all, there is. Uh, we have a. We have a. If they're alive, uh, and I, let me say that's no longer the main uh, f- the main focus of the sign. Wiesenthal Center today is on anti-Semitism and on what's happening in the world today. Uh, when you think about it, that um, most people don't know, um, January the twentieth will be the anniversary of the Vance Conference. January 20th, most people do not know these facts. They think that the Vance Conference was organized by by Heydrich Heichmann, of course, under the direction of Hitler in Himmler, Yemachima, over Zichro. What they don't know is, and this is what a new exhibit that we're doing now in the center to make sure the whole world knows about it. The main, here's what happened that, that most of the world doesn't know. Before the Vance Conference, which was convened uh, by Heydrich, Heydrich met with Eichmann, and he, he said as follows. He said, look, Heydrich says, I'm very worried about today's meeting. And Eichmann said, what are you worried about? <clears throat> says, I don't think we're going to win in the concept that we want the final solution of the Jewish question. And Eichmann said, what do, you, what do you mean you don't think we're going to win? There are 15 people coming to the meeting. And Heydrich said, yes, there are 15 people coming to the meeting, but most of them are intellectuals. And intellectuals are not going to buy the idea of a final solution. And what did, what did he mean? He meant that 
eight of the 15 representatives that were going to vote on that question were PhDs. Some of them from the finest universities in the world. One from the University of Paris. Another one, a Rockefeller scholarship. And what Heydrich was afraid of is when these people hear at the meeting that the plan is to absolutely murder the, the Jewish people of Europe, these intellectuals are going to say, what are you talking about? Murder. That's not what a human being does on this planet. And then the meeting starts. And when an hour later the meeting starts, and Heydrich is shocked that as soon as the question comes up and it comes time to the, their opinions, all of the eight immediately vote for the final solution of the Jewish question. So much so that when the meeting ended and everybody left, Heydrich and Eichmann, you'll pardon the expression, I don't mean it in this way, but you, you, your audience will understand. Heydrich and Eichmann sort of drank a l'chaim, took out the bottle and wished each other well because contrary to Heydrich's expectations, it was a unanimous decision and most enthusiastically backed by people who you, everyone would expect should know better because of their educational background. That's what is very essential in today's world. Let us not make that mistake again. Let us not say that because the person that hates Israel or because the person that is saying sitting in Congress and hates Israel, that basically they'll never do it. Why won't they do it? Because they're sitting in the United States Congress or they're sitting at a university here today. No, 80 years ago to this date, they're coming up this month. That's when that meeting took place and the intellectuals hammered it home for Hitler. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of the damn I mean, like, uh, there are so many parallels, I would say, from then to now and, and those who don't learn from history or are, are, are destined to repeat it. Um, and I think that's an incredibly powerful message and a powerful work of what the center is, is doing. Um, what is the future? I mean, what is the future of, of Holocaust education? Where, where do we need to go as a community? What do we need to do um, in order to try? And we know from various surveys uh, that were conducted, you know, Holocaust education and awareness is at almost at all-time lows despite millions of dollars trying to ingrain in the consciousness of Americans the dangers of, of what a society can do when it turns on each other. And yet, when you go to certain parts of the country, and you mentioned the Holocaust, they have no idea that or those lessons that you learn. What do we need to do in order to, to keep the memory alive and, and to keep those lessons really uh, important for the future? Well, we, 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 we have to make sure that if we forget the past, we're condemned to relive it. Take a look at what's happening today with Iran. How can it be? Let's ask ourselves. How can it be that the Ayatollah of Iran today, the new one, just, just elected, who is more extreme than the old Ayatollah, who believes that the Holocaust never occurred. We're sitting down, all the European leaders, we're sitting down with this, with this man, and we want to make a deal with him regarding the issue of nuclear weapons. And nobody is saying to them, we can't trust the word that you say. You deny the Holocaust. When you deny the Holocaust, what does that mean about our future, about Israel's future? about all the all the countries that are in that neighborhood, it would these people wouldn't think twice about if they had nuclear weapons using it against the Jewish state. And whether it's President Biden, whether it's the United States Congress, I don't want to be political, but I want to say 
Nobody should be making a deal with a monster that doesn't, that says openly now that the Holocaust never occurred. We should be choshed him. We should suspect him immediately that he, everything they're doing, whatever they say. In other words, what, what President Biden should do is that every single possible method of checking them 24-7, 365 days a year, because you can't believe a person who says the Holocaust never occurred that he's not going to lie about nuclear weapons. It's, it's the biggest joke. In other words, if the person would say, I'm the new Ayatollah of Iran and I'm a, you pardon the pun, I'm a Balchuva. The state of Israel, <laughs> if the state of Israel deserves to exist, then you could say, let's make a deal with them. You could trust them. We'd never believe that they have a new Ayatollah and the man accepts the state of Israel. But when he openly tells the world that the Holocaust never occurred and we're sitting down now to meet with him in Europe and we're going to trust him, we should say whatever demands we made on the old Ayatollah, we're going to do a thousand times more strict with you. Mm. Wow. Rabbi Heyer, I want to jump on that very quickly because um, in a previous episode, we had Howard Friedman, Howard Sweet Friedman, who sits on your board, I believe, and he talked about this very issue. Um, he had a relationship with um, with the uh, uh, President Obama and the administration. And on the show, um, which we conducted uh, together with uh, Howie Bagelman, the head of Ohio Jewish Communities, uh, we, we, we asked Howard um, about his relationship with President Obama specifically regarding the Iran deal. He, Howard Freeman said that he publicly debated uh, President Obama in the Oval Office in front of his cabinet about the issue, but it didn't go anywhere. Um, what do you think is the effective messaging? Um, because we could speak in our language and we get it, but how do we speak in someone else's language? If we want to really be effective, what is the, um, the strategy and the approach? Um, obviously with, you know, doing it professionally, but also being, uh, being done, uh, effectively that they can understand this point. Well, let me say, uh, ironically, I was at that meeting <laughs> in the White House, uh, with President Obama and Howard did say that. And I want to tell you something. Here's what I said to the president. The president recognized me also to say a few words. And I said the following. Mr. President, given the fact that we're now going to negotiate with the Iranians, I would cancel all of our memorial, all of our memorial ceremonies about the Second World War that the United States is scheduled now to hold in Europe. We have no business going to the cemeteries where all the, all the martyrs were killed, where American soldiers were killed, because the reason we should cancel those uh, commemorations is because we're, what good are those commemorations if we're about to sit down with somebody who denies the Holocaust? If you would ask those people who are buried, who fought against Hitler, members of the United States Armed Forces, the British, the French, and others, you ask them now if they want to have a ceremony that basically, what good is the ceremony memorializing these people who died because they, they fought Hitler when here we're supporting the new Hitler? And of course, he, 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 didn't, he didn't say anything. He had no words. President Obama had no words for that. No, he, did, he didn't say. He went right on with the, you know, with the discussion. But Howard and I were at that meeting, and Howard did say his exactly, and this is what I said. Do you felt it were you were being pacified, or do you, you know, uh, just the, uh, or do you felt he, you know, and his administration, no, I, administration I, I think, was listening? I, I th- no, I think they they buy into the idea that they can somehow turn these Aitolas around. That the United States, because it's, you know, after all, we can uh, we can help them economically. We can give them money. And because of that, they're going to be, yes, if they would be normal people, let's say in European countries and others and democracies. But when you're talking about fanatics, 
that are anti-Semites from the day they were born. I mean, they, they just hate Jews. It's just, it's ridiculous to make a deal with them. That's why when I see that we're putting in so much effort again with the new Ayatollah, when everybody, even the New York Times, writes that the new Ayatollah is more extreme than the other Ayatollahs. So with them, you want to make a deal? Monty, yes, Monty Hall once came up with the idea, let's make a deal. By the <laughs> way, for that, I, for that, I have a good, a, a good thing. And I'm not going to mention the names because the families are still <laughs> known. So I'm not going to mention any names. But I'll tell you a story. So I went, when I was a rabbi in Vancouver, uh, some people, I, I was invited to speak at the JCC in Calgary. And somebody said, hey, don't go. Someone from my shul in Vancouver told me not to go. I said, why not? He said, because they're aiming to get you. I said, what do you mean they're aiming to get me? They say that you tolerate kids that wear their, you t- encourage them if they want to, they wear their tzitzes on the outside. And uh, they, they're, they're really going to come out and get you. So I come down there to speak. It was freezing, Calgary in the winter. And sitting in the first row, by the way, uh, Canada was the place, Monty Hall, he was born in Canada. He had, a, he had a television program. So anyway, here's the first, sitting in the first row are a bunch of people. The women are all in mink coats. And the mink coats are out there. And they, they start on me. Uh, and the questions, Rabbi, is it true that you don't say anything? You have people in NCSY that have their laundry strings on the outside. That's what they look like, laundry strings. And you don't say, you don't say anything about them. How's that possible in a modern age? So I said, I, 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 didn't, I, knew, I knew in advance that they were going to say, but I didn't know, I didn't know about the mink coats. So I said exactly like this. Ladies and gentlemen, here's my answer. I'm now in Canada, in cold country here in Calgary. It's freezing. This is the country of Monty Hall. Monty Hall has a television program in Canada. It's called Let's Make a Deal. So ladies and gentlemen, here's what I have to say. Let's make a deal. I'm looking at you all, and I see you have your mink coats, fur on the outside. So having learned in the Talmud, here would be my question. Why do you have the fur on the outside if the objective is because it's freezing in Calgary and you want to be warm? Put the fur on the inside where it can warm you up. What are you (laughs) wearing the fur on the outside? So the answer is you're wearing the fur on the outside because you're saying like this, how lucky I am. Look at my husband. He bought me so he bought me such a coat. And therefore I want to show you, isn't that a coat? I'm wearing a mink with the alazachen. So I say, so you're proud, and that's why you wear the the, the the fur, not on the inside where it can warm you out, but on the outside. But you want to attack kids who are proud of their Judaism, and you say, Why are you taking the laundry strings on the outside? Put the laundry strings. Hey, here's my let's make a deal. When you go home tonight and you go to the tailor tomorrow and put the fur back on the inside, I'm going back to Vancouver and telling my kid, put those laundry strings back in your pants. <laughs> what, what do they say? What do they say? They had nothing it? to say. That was it? End of all? No, they were very angry, but they had nothing to say. <laughs> I wonder what the next question was. <laughs> or the next deal. There were no more questions. That was it. That, you know, no. That was it. But, you know, I, I think I, off off the air, I'll tell you the name of the family, so uh, you know that it's a so you <laughs> so you know you you know that I'm not telling you boobamices. Uh, we'll, we'll say we'll say that for the extras. Um, but you raise a really interesting point about really its message, right? How do you how do you explain something and messaging? And I think that going going back to you know, explaining the message, especially in this generation where it's either like 120 characters, well, it used to be 120 characters on, on Twitter, or it's like a 30-second TikTok video, 
and, and new social media when, when a celebrity can tweet out something nonsense about Israel and it goes to 46 million followers, you know, a hundred, you know, potentially hundreds of millions of views. How, how do we continue the education in an, in a, really a society that gets its news in 30 second sound bites from celebrity? No, it's very, it's very important. That's, it's very important to speak up on these issues and to do it in a very effective, effective manner. Let me, t- let me be very frank, because I know you want me to be, okay, I'm a yeshiva bocha. I learned in yeshiva. I did not, I didn't go to university. Um, I, uh, I learned uh, in the base medrash uh, six and a half years after high school in the base medrash. And I want to say, and I think this is very important. You, today, in the Jewish community, if you reach out to people, you can get people involved in a cause that is a, a legitimate cause. Let's say the state of Israel after the Shoah and all that. And, for example, in my case, I was very fortunate. Um, I people say, you know, members of the entertainment community, they're, they're all leftists and uh, they're going to, you know, you can't win them over, etc. It's not true. I know so. I, uh, it, it's, it's absolutely not true. I want to tell you a, a story. Um, I was very fortunate that uh, when we started the Sign Wiesnall Center, after the story that I told you about the dinosaurs, uh, we had a building where the yeshiva was. So the building was an E-shaped. But the building, it was the Reese Davis Clinic previously, and they pulled out all of the electricity, meaning all the electrical wires were out of the building. So there's no way, there were no lights. During the day, if you have through the windows, so you could have light. So it took a few months until we got organized. Anyway, to make a long story short, there we are. And... Um, I had a long extension cord and I get a call from a rough sounding person who says that his name is Mickey Rudin. And I said, uh, excuse me. Yes. I said, Mr. Rudin, this is Rabbi Haya. Why are you calling? Uh, you know, he's, he says, are you going to be in your office for the next two hours? I'm not, I didn't want to tell him. We have a yeshiva wing on one side. It's an E-shaped building. They took out all the electricity. I had a long extension cord. I said, I don't want to tell them that. It's not exactly an office. I'm walking around with this long 150. So he says, I said, why Why do you want to know? I said, yes, I will be here for the next two hours. Why are you calling? He says, you're the person that put in the B'nai B'ris messenger that you're starting the Simon Wiesendorf Center. Is that right? I said, yes. He says, well, you're going to get a call from Frank Sinatra. I said, what? Frank Sinatra? I said, why is he, why is he going to call me? He says, that's a good question. And he says, you know why he's going to call you? Because he doesn't listen to his lawyer. I'm his lawyer. <laughs> so, so Frank Sinatra calls me, invites me to his home, tells me he read in the B'nai Messenger, we want to start the Simon Wiesendorf Center. He wants to help us. And he says, can I call my neighbor in, Danny Schwartz? He's got a Jewish directory. Let's make some calls. And he calls in uh, Danny Schwartz. And he starts making calls and calls people. And you know why he, later on, I knew him very well. Without him, the Wiesendorf Center would never have begun. Because he, the cloud, he was amazing. You know how I, how I found out about him? He was born in New Jersey, in a small t- part of New Jersey. And the only person that consistently invited him to his house was a young, traditional Jewish lady. He loved the Jewish cooking. And he was invited by all the, Jew- the Jewish holidays to their, to their home. And as a result of that, he became an Oev Yisrael. And in 19, if you look it up, in the, he helped. Um, a captain of a ship was waiting to get paid. 
1946 to bring arms to Israel. And the person that was, Teddy Kolak was supposed to bring the million dollars, but he was being followed. So Teddy Kolak went over to Frank Sinatra, even the same in the Copacabana, and he said, well, you deliver it. And he did. And in 1956, uh, there was a parade, Independence Day in Israel. You had Ben-Gurion in the middle, chief of staff on the right, and Sinatra on the left. And so my point is as follows. You can't write off people if they're in the entertainment community or that. You have to work. You have to, you have to go out there, roll up your sleeves, and you have to, you know, you know what I mean? Just like there are Bali, Chuva, and Yeshiva. Whoever heard in Europe of NCSY, Torah Leadership Seminar? We didn't hear that in Europe. In America, we heard of NCSY. We got this, we got that. You got to work for it. And if a person goes out and explains to a person rationally what the position of Claudius Royal is regarding Israel and that, you can win them over. There's no such thing that they, we have to write them off. We have we have to roll up our sleeves and work. Do you think that Do you think that's harder now, given the fact that you know, if you say something wrong today, or someone famous says something wrong, you know, the idea of canceling them and there's a an online mob that just basically you know tries to erase erase them from job, erase them from you know uh, you know life in general. Let, Is so the pressure let, too high to speak out? No, I think that if you speak out, look, I, I, you know, the king of Bahrain, uh, the king of Bahrain. Not personally. Said, no, no, I just <laughs> want to tell you this. But, you know, the, the, the Bahrain has a king. Yeah. So what happened is um, one time, you know, when I when I met him, I made the brocha. Says, yeah, in Aloha, when you meet a king, you have to make a brocha. I made that brocha. You know what I found out about the king? The king was Bruges. The king is a um, fanatical fan. He sings. And he's a fanatical fan of Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and when he ordered Sinatra's tapes, uh, he couldn't get it because of the boycott against Israel. CBS was boycotted because they were they were sending these tapes out. So he got angry. And when I anyway, when I saw the king of Bahrain and he heard that uh, Frank Sinatra is was a member of our board of trustees. I mean, and look what happened. I'm not saying I'm just saying, you see, it doesn't work that way. And there are many people who write off. They say like this. Oh, oh, the entertainment community. Oh. How do you know? There's such a thing of Bali Chuva in that area too. If you work on it, in other words, you know what I mean? In other words, I don't believe in the idea that, oh, this is out of the question because that if, let's see, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. In many cases, it isn't. Today, you have the Abrahamic Accords. None of us in the Jewish community ever expected to have the Abrahamic Accords. We thought that this is gone. 22 Arab states are surrounding the state of Israel. There's no possibility that they can be friends with anybody. Well, guess what? We were wrong. That, that, that's beautiful. And actually, last week, we uh, I may have told you, but we recorded Jason Greenblatt, and he told over that story. And I couldn't believe it when he said that he sat down with Palestinians. He would invite them to his Shabbat dinner, and he would just spend time listening to them and many of them came around. I just, I, it was so far, this know, whole idea. You know, I daven for the Omid in, in, uh, in the, we had in Bahrain, the Minion, when Jason was there. So I daven for the Omid, and afterward we all sang Am Yisrael Chai and danced. So, you know, the, the Rabbana Shalom runs the world. So here the Rabbana Shalom. Who, how would you know that, look, all of a sudden, I would never, in a mad look, I, I would never think in my whole life that uh, there was a Jewish lady that was Makara Frank Sinatra. As a result, he became an oh, That's the way it works. That's beautiful. That's I the think, way it works. I think you speak very, very clearly about the idea of, number one, not giving up on anybody. 
number two, treating everyone with dignity and respect, regardless of where they come from or their view, and and, and, and really sitting down and talking to people. Um, and I think that that is, is, that is a message that's very much been lost, certainly recently, that is, is an important message to, to certainly take, take from that. What are some of the most, I mean, you, you've talked about basically, I think Frank Sinatra, I'm a big fan, by the way, huge fan. My grandmother was a huge fan. Um, and, and it's nice to know that he saved Israel as well as like, you know, uh, had a part in the Abraham Accords, which is fantastic. But what are some of the other surprising stories, the people you've met, the, that you've walked into a room and tried to explain the work of the center that you think that you're going to get a negative and, and, and they've come back and said, wow, I want to get involved. I want to help. This is incredibly important. Well, many, many people I've met, uh, Baruch Hashem, look, I'm not trying to, I'm just, look, I'm, a, I, I, I'm, when people say, I, I don't say, look, I never, I didn't, I don't have a university degree, uh, you know, I spent my time in yeshiva, but the point of the matter is I learned that you can't give up on people. Uh, one time, um, it, we did a film that um, I, I was a guest of honor, not a guest of honor, I, I appeared on a panel in the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, and a person came over to me uh, and uh, his name was uh, Christoph Waltz. And he said, uh, I understand that you are doing a film on Herzl. I said, uh, you know, the reason Lausanne has a film division, Mariah Films. I said, yes. And he said, well, um, I'd like to narrate it. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, so I said, you know, why? He said, well, first of all, I know someone from that time, background, from Herzl's time, in my family. And he said, uh, the other reason is, I have two children. He says, I'm, I'm married, uh, you know, and uh, one of them learns in a place, I believe it's the Mira Yeshiva in Jerusalem. <laughs> right. And I, he said, I thought that I should do this film because they're, they're there studying there in Israel, the state of Israel. And without this man, Herzl, there wouldn't have been a state of Israel. And so therefore I want to nominate, I want to that. So people are out there. It, it, in other words, uh, we should never give up. The Rabboni Shalom who created the world, he made sure that Am Yisrael will always live. So even though in the worst moments, miracles occur. They come on the left, on the right. It came from this side, from that side. Harry Truman's background is not exactly, I wouldn't say that, look, of Harry Truman, I've learned from our films. He, he comes to, um, he comes to, um, World War One and he volunteers to go into the army. Now he's coming there and they're waiting for an assignment of a bunk. So the sergeant, you have to go by the sergeant and the sergeant places the people in the bunks. And he says, you, Truman, you want, you want the bottom? Okay, bottom, go over there. Right there where I tell you. And he shows him where he gives it. And who was his bunk partner? That he assigned another man came in, Eddie Jacobson. He met Eddie Jacobson in the First World War. And they bunk partners. They went into partnership together. And in the crucial moment when it came for the creation of the state of Israel, it was Eddie Jacobson that went into the White House to make sure that George Marshall doesn't win the case. George Marshall was against recognizing the state of Israel. They didn't want Truman to do it because of oil, Arab oil. And in comes Eddie Jacobson. Harry Truman's bunk partner and later his went into business with him and says to him, Weitzman is waiting in a hotel in, in, in New York City. And you mean to say you're not, you're, come on, Harry, you're not going to see Weitzman, he's coming here, that, et cetera. So Harry says, okay, you dash, dash, meaning a little curse word. He said, okay, send him over here and you can tell him that when push comes to shove, I'm going to vote for the state of Israel, for the creation of the state of Israel. 
Now, what is that? If not Hashgacha Protis, what are the chances? These guys meet in World One, a, a sergeant that nobody knows puts Jacobson as a partner with the other guy. And then the other guy comes along at a key moment of history and plays his role. And, and you know what? When the state of Israel was created, most people don't know the biblical reading. The biblical reading on the day that the state of Israel was created included the Posik, Lo Yikora O Shimcha Yankov, your name shall no longer be Yankov, Kiim Yisrael, but Israel. You know, I mean, it's phenomenal. I think we rely a little bit too much on Hatacha Protest as a, you know, as a people, but, you know, we'll take it where, however it comes. And, 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 you know, talking about Israel and, and, and certainly the community, you know, the recent Pew report, I believe, says that there's a significant amount of people, especially younger people in the community, who either have neutral or negative views about, you know, Israel. Um, for really, for the first time in, I would say, polling and, and, and day history, how, do, how does a community fight that, you know, from, you know, inwardly? How do, how do what's some of the strategies that you, you think about or you guys are doing and, and me as a, as a CEO of a federation, what can we be doing to not only fight the anti-Israel stuff within the community, outside the community, but also anti-Semitism? Yeah, um, and, and Rabbi Heyer, I want to just add on to Joel's question, specifically as it pertains to college campuses. How do we make sure that we're addressing that age group, that demographic also with all of that in mind? Well, it's very important to have people, you know, that uh, speak to them. We, we, you know, and to try to find out who their motivators are. In other words, you know, there are students that sometimes they follow that student and the idea is to get that student. You got to tell them and, and, and they need to know the facts. I mean, look, look, in the United States Congress, it's just amazing to me that uh, you can have people in the United States Congress today, uh, what they're doing. It takes, look, the, the, the Jewish people will never be a majority there are many people on this planet. The Jews are not a majority. We're a minority. And in a minority, we need every one of us to count. The more people that we sign up that, you know, to, to do this battle, to help us in the battle to, for the survival of Claudius Royal, that was a, that's our obligation. You know, that, uh, you know, there's, there's no other way to explain it. You know, that uh, basically, um, you know, I, I can only say over and over that it, it it doesn't take too many. In other words, the Rabbonish law knew to begin with, if there are billions of people on this planet, Claudius Royal is a very small number. And that's why each one of us has to count. We can't say, oh, somebody else is going to do it. You know, there are 600 people or a thousand members of a congregation and they say, well, let the rabbi do it. That's it. We're just here. We bought a seat and we come here. We like the singing. But as far as getting involved, we don't want to get involved. Well, it's our obligation to get involved. That's why, you know, if we want Amisferl to survive, you got to sign up. And it, does, it doesn't mean, you know, Chazal say, yesh kono lomo b'sho'achas. A person can do great things of what is required of him in one hour, if it's the right hour at the right time. But to simply sit there and say that I'm watching from the bleachers doesn't accomplish anything for Claudius Royal. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same thing about my Peloton class. You know, what I can achieve in an hour with an ex, you know, an exercise class, and you know, just sit on the sidelines, which I've done a little bit too too much in uh, in this COVID time. Um, I think that you, you know, when you you speak to students, especially you know, uh, on college campuses, and, and they're this they're they're under so much pressure. I feel like sometimes they feel like they're the, that that generation to speak for Israel and anti-Semitism, and uh, you know. I, I was the director of, uh, of Hillel UGA uh, in Athens, Georgia, for a while. I worked at the University of Michigan and down in Florida. And depending on where I was, and it's certainly going through my Hillel career, we were eroding um, the kind of like the 
the sense of pride within Jewish community, you know, people would take off their kippah a little bit and then they would hide their, you know, Jewish star. And when I arrived here in 2003, it it was, it was not, that that wasn't something that anyone considered, but, you know, 10 years later in 2013, there were, you know, people were worried about even raising like, you know, an Israeli flag or carrying like an Israeli pin, you know, um, on their, uh, you know, on their backpack and, and they started to get scared and, and fast forward. Now we're hearing from students who can't even uh, say their own opinions in classrooms because their professors are either going to, you know, not grade them properly, or they're going to be a target of really anti-Israel anti-Semitism, or they're going to be demanded to be the spokesperson for the Israeli government on something that happened, you know, thousands of miles away. It's a massive issue. And, we are struggling as a community to try and give them kind of that Jewish self-confidence and pride and their Israel knowledge that they can feel confident in their, in their, uh, you know, in their thought process and in their support for Israel, that they can walk across from one side of campus to the other with an Israeli flag and not be touched. Um, and, and, and so what are your, some of your thoughts on, on that process and, 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 and how, what have you seen in the last decade or two decades uh you know around that well first of all i think that uh, again uh you know there it, it takes we we what we need to do is it, it, you know our chazal tell us that the osali migdosh i built myself a tabernacle says the ravonish lolom he built a temple but i don't live in my temple Says, I live in you. In other words, I'm dependent on you, which means as follows. If there's no one out there that is proud of being a Jew, if there's no one out there that is willing to do something on behalf of the Jewish people, if all we're interested is basically looking that somebody else should do the business for us, then we're going to be in terrible shape. It's our obligation to do it. We know from the beginning that we're a minority people. There are billions of people on the planet, but in terms of the Jewish uh, community, it's a very small community. So nobody gets a free pass. If you want a free pass, things will get worse for us. If you want things to be better, roll up your sleeves and do something, whatever you can do. Nobody says that every student has to be the president of his class, later on be the, the chairman of the, of the federation. You can just be an ordinary Jew, if you, you know, as long as you do something, just to sit in the background and watch other people do it. That's when Soros occurred to the Jewish people, when there's nobody out front. You know, look, Jabotinsky, whatever you, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm just citing him. Most people say, you know, we didn't get any warning. You, everybody got a warning. Jabotinsky went to Warsaw. He told you exactly what was going to happen, that it, the world didn't listen. So today, if we see that things are not so good in Congress, that things are not so good there, we have to do something, roll up our sleeves. Nobody gets a free ride. If we, we think that the Jew, we're going to make Judaism or the Jewish people survive by doing nothing, that is not the way, that is not the way, that's not our obligation, that's not who we should be. And uh, it, so every Jew can do something. There are people who cannot speak publicly, but they can do other things. They have a way of talking to people, they can win over their neighbors. Everybody can do something. And to simply get away all your life by not having participated in Jewish destiny is an avla. It's terrible. So I, I appeal to everyone, if anyone is listening and they say, well, I can't do it, I don't believe in it. Uh, believe me, I thought the beginning, I also couldn't do it. I'm from the East Side. I didn't go to Columbia University. I didn't go to Yale. I don't have any degree in, in Harvard. I believe me, I thought many times I can't do it. But give it a shot and you'll see how you can do it. Wow, that 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 is that's incredible. And uh, Rabbi Har, we, we touched upon so many important um, discussions. Uh, you know, when you talk about how uh, anyone should see themselves as someone that can accomplish, uh, whether it was like we discussed before, sitting down with people, not writing them off, um, 
I want to know if you could share with us a, a parting message, um, maybe something of inspiration, of chizuk, of hope. Um, we are living in very interesting times. Yes, the rise of anti-Semitism and, and the civil unrest and COVID. And there's a lot of um, confusion in the world. Being that you are so involved with some of the um, research and, and uh, un- discovering of Jewish history, anti-Semitism, Sometimes history gives you a you know a third eye, and I want to know if you could share with us a, a message of hope, something from your experiences that could encourage us and inspire us to maintain that Jewish pride. Well, I, I just want to say one thing that in terms of Jewish pride, I noticed, and I said this once on an interview. I I see that it the, the world is full of ironies. You just have to open your eyes. So. Someone was, we had a terrible uh, interview on a, on a radio station and the interview was about Farrakhan. And everyone knows that Farrakhan is an anti-Semite, first class. But if you look into his background, you see that when he was in, when he was in the hospital, he had many surgeries, many of the surgeries and all of the 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 so the invention of the medicines at that were that were used to cure him were all invented by Jews and look what happened now we have the Jews play a role in the pandemic do we play any role at all uh i can tell you that let's say i'm not i don't want to make a commercial but look the head of Pfizer, Zaid. You know, when people are taking the medicine all over the world, they're getting the shots. Uh, Farrakhan had many operations. All the operations that he had, the medicines and the surgeries were supplied by Eden. You got to do something. So, yes. So what I'm saying is Jews, without Jews, this planet would have been totally different. We have earned the right to live on this planet by what we've contributed to mankind. That's beautiful. That is success is in our DNA. The Ye Bracha, like Hashem told Abraham, our forefather, will be a will be there'll be we will be a blessing. So, Rabbi Hayer, I made a mistake. That wasn't my last question. This is my last question. <laughs> How do we get Rabbi Hayer to come visit us in Columbus, Ohio? Yeah, when are you coming? <laughs> Tell me that you have a good Cholent. <laughs> Award-winning Cholent. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I'm look, serious, by the way. Look, Hashem, the time, when times get a little bit, the, you know, we get out of this COVID. Sure. You'll sure. call me and figure, when I'm in the area, I will uh, come. We'll make come. it happen. You're, we'll make it happen. Please. Rabbi okay. Heyer, thank you for coming on our show and talking thank with you. such passion and inspiration. I mean, Joel, I don't know if we... Uh, we left anything unchecked and uncovered, but um, um, there's always more to talk about. So maybe we'll have a take two also. But Rabbi Heyer uh, from <laughs> from Columbus, Ohio, thank you for coming on and sharing such amazing, amazing words of inspiration with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. So, Joel, wow. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I don't even know where to start. Wow. Look, I, I think for me, I mean, it's, it's inspirational. It's inspirational because you realize that everyone can play their part. Right. No, matter, no matter how big or small they think they can do, with both with time, talent, and treasure, that we need to unite. And I, I look at that and think that we shouldn't be apologetic of what right. we've contributed to the, to the world. And the world needs to understand and know not only the horrors of the Holocaust, but also how we rose from the ashes in order to contribute to things that, to all different aspects of society, you know, science, medicine, technology, that we couldn't be in the world that we're in today and have those advances without, you know, Jews. Right. And, right. and understanding that intrinsically, whether somebody, doesn't matter if they're religious or irreligious, but they have a certain set of in our DNA in order to help each other. And That's even right. those 
that are anti-Semites or those that want to destroy us. There is an innate wanting to wanting to help, um, right. and I think that's very powerful. Right, right. That uh, Tzelam Elokim, they were created with God's image. So there's something there. It's on us to find it and to tap in. But that is, uh, it's Am Yisrael Chai, and uh, this and this was uh, incredible. I mean, you're talking about someone that's just uh, his has such a um, reputation for effectiveness in this uh, very important topic. So Joel, thanks for doing this with me. I could not have done it on my own and uh, you, you, you helped get the best out of him. So thank you oh, for coming well, on no, doing well, this. You know, it's a pleasure. And I think I'm going to listen to a little bit of Frank Sinatra. <laughs> okay. Very good. All righty. So this is, this concludes our, our episode of Colot and we all, Thank you for listening and looking forward to seeing you all next time. Have you enjoyed Colote episodes? If so, I want to tell you about a special opportunity, how you can help us continue this work while also supporting all the Torah learning at the Colel. The Colel is currently having its annual raffle and by becoming a raffle sponsor or purchasing raffle tickets, you help us continue all the Torah learning and teaching we offer. You can win two tickets to Israel, the latest iMac, and gift cards to your favorite shopping center. But it gets even better. Thanks to several Colo benefactors, every raffle ticket and sponsorship will result in the dollar amount getting tripled. The final raffle drawing will take place on March 28th at our raffle celebration event featuring Ohio State Buckeyes head coach, Ryan Day. Stay tuned for more details. The theme of this year's campaign is Rise Up as we highlight all the new and exciting things the Kolal is doing. By rising up and participating in the raffle, you help us keep up this vital work. Our rabbis teach us there is only one mitzvah that is equal to all the other mitzvahs, and that is the mitzvah of Torah study. You can be part of this while entering into our raffle. So please visit RiseUpColumbus.com to consider a sponsorship or purchase your raffle tickets.